It was rare in my educational career, though it did happen, that I'd have a professor or a teacher say, this will be on the quiz. You know, they just, they'd say it. And it's funny how some people still wouldn't believe it and still would be dumb enough to not jot that down and, and get an automatic A on that one. What you just watched, this will be on the quiz. So next week, Easter Sunday, we're going to play the same countdown with the same questions and the same answers. And you can sit there with the friend you invited and you can just look ever so brilliant as you spout out the answers. And they're like, how did you know that? Well, I'm kind of a Bible scholar, you know. Be humble about it, but, you know, just let them know. Yeah, I, this, is, this is what life in God is like. I just know these things. So, so that will be on the quiz. Welcome to church this morning on this, on this Palm Sunday, a day that we get to celebrate uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, just an, an incredible, amazing day of, of happiness. Uh, we're moving into this week, Easter week, and, and I think that Easter week is a, it's a unique opportunity to form Christ in your life. It's a unique opportunity to enter into a season of formation, one that, one that happens in a way that doesn't in other parts of the year. And let me show you how. One of the things that we try to do around here is to enter into Easter week imagining that we didn't know the story. Imagining that we, we have no clue of what's coming next. I know that's not an easy thing to do because we do know what's coming next. Because we do know the whole story. But is it possible for you to take this week and experience it event by event, moment by moment, as it builds without the next thing in mind? So you're here for Palm Sunday and Palm Sunday was this day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, and you know, three-quarters of the crowd is just going, I have no idea who this guy is, but this is so cool to be here. This is a party. This is, this is the best. And here's what they did know. Because of their background, they knew that a fella riding on a donkey into Jerusalem with palm branches on the ground was a pretty good sign that this could be the Messiah. This could be him. You see, we in our evangelical background, we like to say, yeah, and in five days from now, you're going to kill him. No, don't do that yet. Don't do that yet. Live in this moment of celebration of this man you've heard of. His name is Jesus, and he's riding into Jerusalem, and that picture is showing some promise that he might be a king. He might be a king. Live in the moment of what we're experiencing. So you received your uh, weekend update yesterday, and as you did, we talked about the events that we'll be going through this week and the way that they'll build. So you're here today. Congratulations. Friday night, Good Friday, we come together for a time of contemplation and reflection. It's a time to simply focus on the death of Jesus. Our friend, we, we just watched him hours before cry out, it is finished on a cross, and he died. He's dead. And, and for us, because of our perspective that we're not looking forward, forward towards Sunday, and because like the disciples, we don't yet have the full picture, what we're feeling is, is a real sense of loss and sorrow, and it's all over. We have a feeling of, it is finished. We don't even understand what Jesus meant yet when he said, it is finished. That was, a, that was a, a victory cry. But for us, we're thinking, it is finished, it is over. Part of the reason that we like to sit in the death of Jesus for a few moments, is not, it's not some form of penance. It's not some way of paying for our own sin by being sorrowful. 
It's, it's for us to be able to fully comprehend that my sin was heinous enough that somebody had to die for it. Somebody had to pay for this. And we, just, we don't just glide over the death and run to the resurrection and forget that a tremendous price was paid for our sin. So that's 7 o'clock Friday night. Then, and, and part of what we love about that evening is, is we set up communion on tables where you can, you can come up with your family, you can come up alone or with a friend and just sit at the table almost as if you're, you're coming back to the upper room. You're coming back to that space once again and, and, you're, and you see the leftovers of communion sitting on the table and one more time you're taking bread and cup and remembering the death of Jesus. Saturday, we call that Silence Saturday, and it, it's tied to a, a spiritual practice referred to as a vigil. A vigil is a chance to watch and wait. It's to just be quiet. It's, it's, kind of, it's what we do when we go visit somebody at a grave, right? We remember their life, we remember who they were to us, and we also look forward to the day that they will be resurrected and we'll be together again. So there's that sense of, of watch and wait together. We come together to watch and wait with Jesus. He's in the tomb. We're watching and we're waiting and we're wondering what might come next. We do that Saturday morning at 10 o'clock from 10 to 11. It's a self-guided time. I don't stand here and talk. Brian doesn't stand here and talk. There are slides scrolling where you just get the chance to be quiet in the presence of God. It is possible for that hour that you would literally shut your eyes and just shut everything out and just be silent in the presence of Jesus to be alone and to experience that sense of, of he's dead, what's next? And then, of course, we'll come back together next Sunday for a day of celebrating Easter and, and all that is involved in that. It's a little bit more complicated Easter this year. I realize that there might be somebody that if you were to invite them, they might start asking, so what's your church like? And as you describe some of the ways that, that we're practicing life, they might go, oh, not for me. Well, 8 o'clock might be for them. At 8 o'clock, we are offering the opportunity to come and be distanced and be masked, and, and maybe you'll come to Easter for, with them, with, with them at, that, at that service if, if that will fit for them. Or you're just going to take the message to them. Maybe you say, hey, you know what? Our church is doing a live stream. You may want to catch that on this day. So think of some creative ways that you can involve uh, family and friends in the message of Easter. You know, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent Next week, we'll skip the Psalms, okay? So you don't have to wonder which obscure Psalm we're going to be studying on Easter Sunday. We will be just going classically straight at the story of Jesus and the story of the death, burial, and resurrection. So those are the events of the week that we hope you'll, you'll participate in. Um, there's some other things happening around here that, that are important to know. Uh, we've, been, we've been stepping up again on some of our, of our, some of our serving opportunities and um, as we come back into uh, life as we knew it, some things aren't going to come back. There are, some, there are some areas of serving that we did that, you know, a year later we're realizing we don't have to do that practice or we can change this. So there are some things that aren't going to be happening the way they did. But there are some things that we've not done for a long time and, and we want to make sure that we're able to do them. So things like having coffee available, 
having communion that doesn't involve pullback seal number one and pullback seal number two. And those things, those things don't just magically descend from on high every Sunday morning. People get involved in, in those serves. So it's possible that you might want to get involved in, in coffee prep. Uh, that happens starting at 7.30 on, sa- on Sunday morning and, and you get the coffee ready. Or on the other hand, you might want to be involved in cleanup. And that can happen right uh, as uh, into the 10:30 service as the 10:30 service starts, or after the 10:30 service. But we'd love for you to find that way of getting getting engaged and involved. I've had the chance uh, recently to to visit a church, a couple of churches actually, with my son as he was as he was getting his roots uh, deeply uh, planted in a church out there in Colorado. And, and in attending with him, I sat down, I loved the service, and we walked away. And I find this every, every time I go to some other church and, and walk out, I'm like, I love the service, but I really wonder about myself. Would I be as engaged if I was not serving? Would I be as engaged if I wasn't coming and doing something to be part of what's going on in the life of this family? So you may find your engagement deepening by something as simple as being involved in prepping coffee. It's, it literally, the announcement says it takes a few hours a year. The way we've structured it, it's not as if, I know some churches, it's like, remember old time Sunday school where they'd hand you the curriculum and they'd say, see you in 27 years? It's not like that, okay? Not like that. We, we structure things in a way that you're able to get involved in a serve, but it's not like a, a life sentence where you're doomed forever. So uh, there's a lot of flexibility involved in that. One of the things that I've loved about this year, I think one of the real blessings of this year, has been the number of people that have come to Southfield and said, uh, I like what I see and I want to call this place home. Uh, this just been, it's been amazing that during this season, we've grown. We've seen, we've seen new people come and say, this is the church that, that I'm going to be calling home. And what we want to do is make sure that if, if you're doing that, uh, you, you, you kind of know where the front door handle is. And you know how to get in. You know how, to, you know how to be a part of what's going on. It's one thing to come and watch and see that's what's happening at that church or that's what's happening on Sunday morning. But, but you may wonder, like, what are we really all about? How does the church function? How does it work? So we've designed a, a couple of uh, very short small group opportunities, first step opportunities we call them. The first one's going to be offered on April 11th. So it starts April 11th, the Sunday after Easter, and that one we call Step In. And Step In is just kind of you walk in the door and you find out what the place is all about. So we're going to talk some about the vision and values of the church. We're going to talk some about salvation, what it means to have a relationship with God. We're going to help guide you through your own story and how your story intersects with God's story. That's Step In. And then a month later, uh, we have our next group that we're calling Step Up. Step Up starts on May, May 2nd, and that's, that's the chance to find out where might I use the giftedness that God has given me in the life of church. What, what might I be able to do? What, what area might I be able to serve? So sometimes, you know, it's, it's possible that you have a strong desire. You want to get involved in serving, but you don't know who to talk to or what's available or, you know, how how does this work? So we try to make it really clear. One of the things that I think is important in talking about serving is to not simply put up the board and say, here are all the openings, which one do you want? But to find out actually, like, how does your wiring fit with opportunities? But also, how do you serve in such a way that you're not always serving on depleted or empty? 
Because serving is an opportunity to be formed into the image of Christ. So how do you do your serving in such a way that you continue to maintain fullness in God? And so we'll talk through that in that group as well. Both those groups last for three weeks. And you notice, like I said, that one starts on May 2nd. May 9th is Mother's Day. We'll take off Mother's Day, so that one will be the second. And then off for Mother's Day and the two weeks after that. So it gives you an idea of some of the ways that you can get involved uh, around Southfield uh, in, the, in the upcoming weeks. Thank you again for your consistency in giving. And as you know, you know, we changed some of the way we're doing giving. So you've got the black box there between the doors. You've got the mailbox out front. You can give online, and, and your faithfulness in that has just been, it's tr- been tremendous, and we thank you for that. I mentioned a little bit ago that we've been walking through the Psalms of Ascents on Sunday mornings. Psalms of Ascents are the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And we chose this particular section of Scripture because it describes normal life in God. It describes what, what normal looks like. Uh, when we, you know, having come through the past year and all, be a lot of people will say, I can't wait get to get back to normal. Well, I think for a lot of people what they mean is, I can't wait to get back to doing what I used to do. But what you used to do may not have been very normal. It might have been totally bizarre. God wants us to actually live in normalcy. He wants us to live in what it means to be normal as a Christ follower. And today we're, we're going to continue to look at the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to look at Psalm 126 and 128. And what's amazing is that they intersect beautifully with what's happening in John chapter 12 with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So I'd like to begin... <clears throat> by looking at the Palm Sunday story, and we're looking at the version found in John chapter 12. It starts with verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Don't skim over that too fast. The large crowd that had come to the feast. What feast were they coming to? They're coming to Passover. You know what that means? They've just got done singing. Psalm 120, and Psalm 121, and Psalm 122, and Psalm 123, and I won't say them all through Psalm 134. These words are fresh on their minds. These words, the words that we're looking at right now in the Psalms, are forming the way they see events in the moment. So they've sung all of these songs as they've taken that journey to Jerusalem, and now they're here They hear that Jesus is there and says, because he's there, they took branches of palms and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young colt. He sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we have this event unfolding in front of the eyes of everybody. And they're seeing this. And as as good Jewish people, here's what they understand. Someday a Messiah is going to come, someday a king is going to come, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem, and he's going to ride in on a colt, and there are going to be palm branches on the brown. And they are euphoric. They are euphoric. They're sitting here in a moment that they're thinking, could this be it? Could this be the guy? Could this be the one? Could this be the king that we've been waiting for? They are, in this moment, they are abundantly happy. They are smiling. They are cheering. They're having a great time. It goes on to say his disciples did not understand these things at first. I love that. John's writing this. John's confessing. I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what was going on here. I just thought that 
Jesus was riding in on a donkey, and I, I thought that maybe he was the Messiah that was going to rule over us here on earth. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So you have these people who just a short time before said, yeah, I was there. You, you would not believe it. He stood outside the tomb, he called out to him, and here comes Lazarus, live, unwrapped him. This guy, I promise you, he was deader than a doornail, and he is alive now. So they're sharing the story about this. And of course, as they're sharing the story about it, it says the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard what he had done. They had heard about the sign. So they're looking and saying, maybe another one will happen today. Maybe there will be another raising from the dead or another cancer cured or another leprosy gone. Maybe there will be another feast. Maybe this time it won't just be bread and fish, but it will bring something a little extra. I don't know, jello. What, what's going to happen here? This could, be, this could be a great day, right? This could be exciting. And, and they, are, they are happy. They are supremely happy in this moment. One group is not happy. Pharisees said to one another, our approach is not working. We're losing this election cycle. It's not working. It's not working. It's just not working out. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Implication, we need to change our plan and change it fast. Well, as you look at the Palm Sunday story, I would describe the people there that day as being very happy. They, I mean, there was, there was glee. There was excitement. They, they were happy. What I question is whether they were joyful. I'm not sure that they were joyful. And the reason I say that is because they didn't even understand why they were there. They didn't, they didn't even understand what was going on or what this was all about. They just knew they were at a really fun party. They just knew that, that this was a moment to cheer and be excited. But I promise you there were some people that they didn't even know they were, why they were cheering. Have you ever gone to like a football game or whatever with someone who has no idea of the rules? They have no idea what's going on. They're just waiting to see your reaction so that they can do the same thing. Woo! Oh, yeah, thank you. Okay, it's woo time. All right, I got it. They're, they're happy, but are they joyful? I'm not sure they are. I know for a fact that the Pharisees are neither happy or joyful. They're downright angry. You see, the norm for the Christ follower is not just being happy. It's not just a big old silly grin across your face. It's not just happiness. The norm, the norm for the Christ follower is to be joyful. Joyful as in full of joy. Absolutely full of joy. And so today, as we look at Psalm 126 and Psalm 128, those patches, passages are not only going to define joy for us, but they're going to show us the path. They're going to show us how we cultivate joyfulness in our lives. Not just happiness, but joyfulness. And so as we're looking at the two, we're asking the questions, what's the difference and which is preferable? What's the difference between happiness and joy, and which one should we prefer? So I'd like to start by looking at Psalm 126 and Psalm 128. Let's hear the words of Scripture. 126 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So here, I, I love this because to me, this is a great definition of joy. Joy is like a dream come true. 
Have you ever had a dream come true? Had that moment that you go, this is like a dream come true. I literally, last night I get home and I, I click on undercover boss. I caught like the last five minutes, which is the best part, where the boss is going, here's 20,000 bucks and here's a new car and here's this and here's that. So they're handing this stuff out. And I'm not kidding, this little girl, she's sitting there and she goes, this is like a dream come true. I'm like, yeah, you get it. This is about more than happy. You realize something substantial has taken place here. You understand that your life is significantly changed in this moment. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When did he restore their fortunes? Well, they believe that this is probably written about the exile coming back from Babylon, 70 years in captivity, 70 years in torture, and now they get to come home? This is like a dream come true. They knew that experience from having been in, in Egypt for 400 years away in slavery. They came home. It's like a dream come true. Maybe even just being captive by the Philistines and then being able to come back to freedom. It's like a dream come true. He says, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. He said, the nations said about us, the Lord has done great things for us them. And they said, you're absolutely right. The Lord has done great things for us. And they have this little point. They say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the desert. So if you look at Israel, it, it, it kind of comes down to this V, down, down to the sea. And this part down here, this is, all, this is all arid desert. And they have these rivers. They call their rivers wadis. So you'd have like the, the DuPage Wadi instead of the DuPage River. And, and these, these wadis, for the most part in the desert, were always just dry riverbeds. You wouldn't even know it's a river. You could walk across it because it was, it was dirt dry. But there were certain times a year that whether it was snow melting or rain falling in excess, there would just be an excessive amount of more water overflowing those riverbanks. They're saying, we're in a drought season right now. Would you bring back the water? Would you, would, you, would you bring water to our thirsty hearts and souls? Restore our fortunes. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, bringing the harvest with him. So we have this picture of hard labor, intense labor, and a longing for the day that the labor will be rewarded. Let's go over to Psalm 128. I brought both of these together because they both have this similar theme of joy. Having said that, Psalm 128 uses a couple of different words that express joy but don't say the word joy the same way. It starts with the word blessed or blessed. To be blessed or to be blessed, some Bible translations replace that word with the word happy. Much more appropriate would be the word joyful. Joyful is the person. This person is full of joy. Joyful is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. It says you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You should be blessed. You're going to be joyful and it'll be well with you. It's going to be well with your soul. Then verses 3 to 6 are just an, a really interesting picture, especially for modern ears. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Or what's he saying? Your wife will always be pregnant. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. There are going to be tons of kids around your table all the time. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now what's funny is half the room is going, 
that sounds blessed. And the other half is saying, what in the world are you talking about? Then he goes on to say, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. May you live a long life. Peace be on Israel. So as we look at happiness and joy, let me just give you this, this initial difference between the two. Happiness is externally triggered. The events of life bring happy. If someone were to say to me, let's go to Six Flags, I'm not kidding, my reaction would be, ugh, ugh, why? Let me, let me describe what would bring happy, okay? Let's go to Six Flags. You don't have to drive. You don't have to park. You don't have to pay. I'll buy the $12 hot dog for you. You don't have to go on the giant drop. You don't have to go on anything that goes fast enough that makes you want to throw up. You can go to the lazy river all day long. You can stay in the wave pool and all that, but you don't have to go on any rides. I would smile. I would be happy. It would be a happy day. I, that, that'd be a good thing, right? An event triggered my happiness. External event triggered my happiness. But joy, joy is internally cultivated. Joy doesn't just happen to you. You work at it. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit, but you work at cultivating the fruit of the Spirit of your life. You work at cultivating joy. It is March 21st, right? 28th. Uh, it's somewhere in March. I, I don't know about you, but I don't remember the calendar at all anymore. We lost a year, right? March 20th. So here we are. It's the end of March. Since about March 2nd, I've been wanting to go to Home Depot, Menards, and other to look at plants. I'm just ready, right? I'm ready. I mean, I, I got the patio set out at the end of February. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm just ready for this. I'm ready to get planting. And I know full well, if I plant a bunch of stuff right now, the next cold day, the next frost is going to kill it. I've got to wait a little bit, but here's what I can do. I can get ready. I can get the tiller out, and I can get the ground working. I can, I can go find some cow manure and get that mixed in just right so that my neighbors love me. I can get all this stuff. I can get ready. I can do some cultivating. Joy is internally cultivated. It's something that we prepare our hearts for in order that there is growth. Psalm 126 shows us how to cultivate joy. It shows us the process of working the ground so that joy might emerge. What do we see here? Well, the beginning of the passage talked about the past. It talked about a restoring of fortunes. It talked about a time that they were in captivity, but God brought them home. And the nations recognized that God had done something great for them, and they recognized that God had done something great for them. So the cultivation of joy starts with reflecting on God's past actions in my life. It's to literally take the time to look back and count my blessings and name them one by one. It's the time to look back and say, God actually was there. God did some amazing things. In fact, there may be things that happened that in the moment we just went, wow. And as we reflect back, we realize that wasn't just a wow, that was God. God did that. And so we, we start working the ground of our soul for joyfulness by looking at the past and looking at the ways in which God was there, where the Lord had done great things for us. And because the Lord had done great things for us, we were filled with joy. 
Now I want to jump to the last part of the passage. It talks about those who sowed in tears, reap in joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing seeds, shall come home with joy, bringing their harvest with them. This part is talking about responding to God's rewards in the future. So on one hand, we have a reflection on the past saying, these are times God showed up. And there's this other part that we're saying, I'm doing hard work right now, and the only way it's going to pay off, the only way there's going to be fruit is if God is in it. This is planting a seed, right? I can plant all the seeds in the world. I have not yet figured out how to make a seed sprout. God does that. So I'm doing the hard work, and I love these images from the Psalms because they they give that picture of sowing with tears. What does that mean? Hard labor. Hard labor, the kind of labor that makes you want to cry. You got some things in your life that have been hard enough labor that, that you feel a heaviness about it? Parenting can go on that list, right? Where, where you're sowing the seed and you're saying, God, I'm doing everything I can. I am trying my best. Is that seed going to grow or not? What's going to happen? It, it may be something you're doing at work. It may be an area of serve. Whatever it is, you've been, you've been doing the hard work. You've been sowing in tears, and all you can do now is say, God, I have hope in the future that you are going to be the one to bring about the results. I can't make results happen. You make results happen. So this cultivating is reflecting on God's past actions. It's responding to the future reward, even if the future reward is simply heaven itself but there's a responding to the future reward. Then we have that little verse in the middle. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Here's what he's saying. While the past was amazing seeing what God did, and while the future is awesome in what God might do, we live in a drought. We live in the desert. We live in the pain of it all. And we're just, we're just longing for that riverbed to be full once again. And for a lot of us, while, while we're in verse 4, we go, how can you be joyful while you're here? How can I have joy when I'm in the middle of the pain? How can I have joy when I'm in the middle of the drought? How can I have joy right now when nothing of my, around me seems very good? Well, here's the thing I'd say. You probably aren't very happy in that moment. And that's understandable. You might be sad, but you can still be joyful. In those moments, we're reaching for God's help in the present. We're always recognizing that the only way I'm going to make it is if God helps me. And we're living in constant dependence on Him, reaching out to God for help. You see, what's amazing about joy is that the person who's living in that drought and has cultivated joy in their life, you look at them and you say, right now there is no reason in the world that that person should be happy about their life in God. And yet they are. Why is that? What's going on there? They've cultivated a deep joy in God. So as you look at these three things, let me give a word for each, okay? When we're reflecting on God's past action, that's gratitude. That's just being grateful. And I'm working that spirit of gratitude in my life. Where I'm, I'm not just taking, I mean, can you imagine manna falls from the sky and you go, wow, God, thanks. Where's the meat? No. 
thank you for the bread, and thank you for the bread again, and thank you for the bread again, and every day. You know, we don't do a, we, we, we pray before we eat, right? We say thanks to God before we eat. We don't go, I, I prayed yesterday, that one should count for this meal too. Every meal we go, God, thank you. Without you, I don't have this. There's a constant recognition of gratitude. This is, this is cultivating the soil of my soul, where I'm, where I'm constantly living in a place of gratitude. God, thank you for that. How about the future? The future is all about cultivating hope. Hope when it feels hopeless. Hope when you're working and working and working and you're saying, and I just don't know if it's going to pay off. It's not about whether or not it's going to be paying off. It's about can God do it? Can God grow the seed? Do I have hope that God can grow the seed? Yes, I do. And so I'm cultivating hope in my heart. And that middle one where we live every day is living in trust. We're just living in trust. We're, we're reaching out and saying, God, I, I can't fill the riverbed. Only you can do it. I trust that you can do this. All three of these things together, joy is grounded in our daily cultivation of gratitude, hope, and trust. Gratitude, hope, and trust. And we're just working that ground again and again and again, growing more gratitude, growing more hope, and growing more trust in God. And the result is the sprout of joy. It's not like I go out pursuing joy. As I take the time to cultivate gratitude, hope, and trust, one day we realize I'm more joyful than I was before. There's more joy present in my life because I've been working the ground. Now, let's go over to Psalm 128 because it gives us some insight on joy as well. Psalm 128 started by saying, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in His ways. So this whole part of, of joyfulness starts with my view of God. How do I see God? What's my, what's my perspective of God in life? It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. I don't know many people who are excited about being scared of God. Now, I, I, I don't know that I've ever met with somebody who said, what I really want is to be a really, really afraid of God. It doesn't say to be afraid of God. It says to fear God. And there's a huge difference. Fearing God is respecting God. Fearing God is recognizing that it's his world, his way, his program. He's in charge. He made it, he created it, he sustains it. I exist for him, he doesn't exist for me. Got in my lucky rabbit's foot, rub three times, get my wish. No! I exist to serve him, I exist to love him. All of my existence is wrapped up in God. So I have this view as I'm, I don't know that it's possible to be truly joyful, void of God. Because God's the reason for all of it. God's the reason behind every part of life. Those people on Palm Sunday, they weren't understanding the Palm Sunday event in light of God. That's why I think they were happy, but they weren't joyful. They didn't yet understand. The disciples later, when they put it all together, joy seeps in. Because now they get it in light of God. How do I know that I fear the Lord? Second part, those who walk in His ways. It is one thing to say the speed limit is 35. Hmm, I see the sign. It's another thing to drive it, right? I know the law. 
I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to do what I want. I don't think you truly have a healthy respect for the law if you ignore what the sign says. You have a healthy respect for you and your will and your way, right? If I know what God wants and I say, but I'm going to do it my way, I don't fear God. I don't have a fear for the Lord. I'm using God. I'm using God for my purposes. But I don't have a fear for God because if I have a fear for God, I realize it's his world, his will, his way, and I'm going to do what he wants. And and I would contend that the only way to true joy is when you finally start doing what God wants. Anything else is pretend happiness. You got a smile on your face, but there isn't depth of joy when we're not walking in the way and will of God. So it's dependent on my view of God. Joy is nourished by our daily submission to the ways and will of God. It's putting myself under his authority and saying, your way. And the more I say your way, the more joy is cultivated in my life. So then we have that second part of the passage that you just kind of go, hmm, constantly pregnant and a table full of kids. Yikes, what in the world is going on there? The psalmist is giving us a Hebrew picture of abundance. This is what abundance looks like. So think of abundance for you. What would, what would abundant look like for you? What would, it, what would it look like to have something in excess, just absolutely overflowing? You don't have one or two of them. You have 500 of them. Whoa! There is an abundance of this particular thing. He's he's creating for us a vision of abundance. He's saying the person who is joyful is a vision of abundance. It doesn't mean that they have everything. It means they live like they do. They live like they have all they ever needed. They live with a spirit of contentment. And so this is where you get this odd dynamic that the person can literally be at a funeral and yet they have a spirit that's different than anyone else in the room. And you're like, what's going on there? There's a sense of joy and contentment and satisfaction that has been cultivated through the years. They live in a spirit of abundance, including, it says, you will see your children's children. He's even talking about abundance of years. He's not saying you'll have all these things. He's saying that the person who is joyful is a picture of abundance to everyone around. For too many of us as Christ followers, we are a picture of scarcity. We we are a picture of, you know, I have very little. And and people look at us going, I wouldn't want that. God's God's describing a spirit of, of abundance, a spirit of overflow. Joy is displayed in our daily appreciation of supernatural abundance from God. Have you ever been around somebody that's just grateful beyond grateful? And you're listening to what they're grateful for, and you're like, that's not really all that big a deal. But wow, are they grateful. They're living in a spirit of abundance. And that spirit of abundance is a spirit of joy. So let's look at the two words uh, side by side in list and just get a feel for what's going on here. Because I, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this. It, it, it's not as if happiness is bad and joy is good. I think God wants his kids to be happy. I think, I think when you squeal like a little girl going down the roller coaster at Six Flags, God laughs. 
He does. He gets a kick out of it. He, I love when my kids laugh. God loves when his kids laugh. God loves when his kids are happy. He, he's, he's not anti-happy. He's not like, the Puritans had it right. No smiling. Stop it. Serious all the time. No, God loves it when we're happy. But he's saying, but you know what? A sugar high isn't what life is all about. There's more. There's more. Again, happiness is externally triggered, but joy is internally cultivated. you got to work at it. It's not an automatic. It grows up in you as you cultivate the soil of your soul. Happiness, more often than not, is momentary. I mean, good night. Take a kid to Walmart. You know, you're in the you're in the toy line or in the toy aisle, and they say, "I want that," and you hand it to them, and they are like, "What? I want that too." No, I hate you. You never give me anything. It's momentary, right? Comes and goes, but joy, joy's consistent. It doesn't come and go. It's there. It's there in the drought, and it's there in the flood. Joy is consistent. Happiness is rooted in pleasure. The pleasure of being with friends, the pleasure of an experience, the pleasure of getting more. Joy, joy is the result of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's fruit that grows up in our lives, the lives of a well-cultivated soul. Happiness reacts. It's good, I smile. It's bad, I frown. Joy transcends. It doesn't need the event or the moment to exist. Happiness is an outward expression, a smile, a laugh. Joy is an internal state. It's a state of being. It's, it's a way I live. Happiness is a smiling face, but joy, joy is a satisfied soul. Happiness is a feeling, or we might say it's an emotion. Joy is not an emotion. It's not. Joy, happiness we feel, joy we know. It's not an emotion, it's a state of being. Happiness lives on the surface, but, but joy is substance. It's deeper. And like I said at the beginning, happiness is not bad. God is not anti-happy. He just wants more. He wants more. Because, because joy, joy is much better. If I could have a song for each, Happiness is I'm walking on sunshine, oh, and I feel good, woo! You know? Joy is it is well with my soul. There's a depth there. There's a depth there. Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my fa- this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove yourself to be my disciples. What does he say? Abundance. Abundant fruit will be present. If you're my disciple, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, you abide in my love. And then he says what? If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. He's saying, it's not enough to just say, I fear God, I do the way and will of God. Just I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you. So he places his joy in us. Without him, we can't have joy. But then he says, for the Christ follower, I've given you my joy, and I want your joy to be full. So we have two things going on here. Without God, I can't have joy. I need God to have joy. But with God, I can have full joy or empty joy. I can have an empty tank. And God says, I want you to cultivate a life 
that grows joy. The norm is joyful. Not giddy, not silly, not slap happy. You know, it's not that, okay? Joy is here. Joy is deep. So it is normal. It is normal for us to experience something beyond happiness. It is normal for us to experience joyfulness. What I'd like to do this morning is use our moment of communion as a time of deep reflection. I think God gives us feelings and emotions for a reason. He gives us, he gives us these experiences so that, we can, so that we can see what's going on in our hearts and know where we are in our relationship with Him. And what I'd love for you this, to do this morning during communion is take some time to, to just measure the depth of joy in your tank. Is your tank spilling over with joy? Could, could, could you use a gallon? You look inside, you're like, I don't see a drop. It's gone. What's going on there? What's not being cultivated? Have you ceased cultivating gratitude, looking to what God has done in the past? Is it possible that hope is dried up and you're just saying, I have no reason to believe that good is coming? Is it in the moment of of drought and dryness you're not trusting? You're trying to do it on your own or you're just saying it's never going to happen anyway? What is it that's not being cultivated in the soul? Is Is it about your view of God that you don't even believe God is? Or you believe God is, but I'm going to do it my way, thank you very much. Would other people describe your life as a picture of abundance? Not because you got everything but because you live like you do. Because you live like you're blessed. So we're going to look at those words again. I'm going to have them on the screen as music is playing. And you can look at the two and ask yourself, am I merely happy or am I truly joyful? Examine the state of your soul today. And then we'll come out of that and sing a beautiful song of Easter followed by the song, The Blessing. And I'll tell you what, as you're singing the blessing, that that song again screams joy, joy, joy. Everything about it is the joy that God wants to place in our hearts. So we have two tables at the front. We have three at the back, one over here and two by the doors with communion. We'll go get those in a moment. And we have three gluten-free stations, two here at the front and one at the back uh, near the camera. Uh, Go to communion, get it, come back. Spend some time reflecting on this and really asking yourself the question, where's my tank? Where's my tank? Where's my joy tank? Empty, full, why? What am I not cultivating? Or maybe, what am I cultivating? And that's why I'm in this good spot. What a gift. What a gift that song is to the church, but I'll tell you what a gift those words are to the world given to us from God to Moses to Aaron to remind us you have every reason to be joyful. Every reason to be joyful. You experience complete abundance when you experience life in God. So what is it in the cultivation of your soul's soil that is stunting your joy? Get to work. Get to work. This is the life he wants for us. This is his desire for us. To be able to walk every day realizing before us, behind us, within us, all around us, his face is upon us. He loves us. He loves you and he wants you to live in his love. So here's what I'm going to do right now. Today is Palm Sunday 
and we give you a palm cross on Palm Sunday. But I got to get to the door. And some of you are sneaky and you like to run out. So I'm walking. Sorry. Have a great day, people on video. I'm going to walk down the aisle right now to beat you to the door. And what we're going to do with these, you know, you can take one. It's a great reminder of this day. But it's possible that there's somebody that was not able to be here with us today because of uh, distancing and vulnerability and whatever. And so if you want an extra one to take along with you, don't feel bad saying, I need two, and we'd be glad to give you one. All right. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for the fact that we can be people who live in joy. And Lord, today I pray that we'd stop just wishing for it and we'd start experiencing it, not magically or mystically, but because we're cultivating our soil in such a way, that soil of our soul, that joy can grow. So let it grow, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.